Thank you very much. How nice to be, to be back here. Um, so I'm going to sort of uh, say some things and then probably read some things out. Um, I tried to do a version of this paper a little while ago, which didn't have any reading out at all and just had me saying some things, but it got a bit sort of mad and ranty and uh, it sort of <laughs> ended up being, and this is why we're all bad people and we're all going to hell right now. <laughs> and, I mean, that is kind of my conclusion, but I want to spend a little more time uh, getting there. Um, so that's the first caveat, I guess. Um, so sorry for the reading bits. Um, the second caveat is that... Um, I hope this paper says something important about the nature of sort of modern day political communities and their relation to each other. Going back over the paper, there are parts of it which you might be forgiven for thinking have quite a lot of political theory methodology to them, which may not be what everyone finds exciting uh, in a presentation. I sort of wondered for a while whether there was any tension between the uh, saying important things about modern day states and lots of political theory methodology. And I decided ultimately that I've just reduced myself to a point now whereby the only way I can say interesting things is via the medium of political theory methodology. For some people, it may be interpretive dance. For me, it's a bunch of pointed remarks about the methodology of political theory. So um, if those bits drag a little, I apologize in advance. But hopefully we'll get to an end point where you see where it's all going. So let me just start by giving you an overview of what I'm going to be talking about and then giving you some context about it. So this is the basic question of the paper. Um, and so it's a response to what I think is the sort of the dominant way in which contemporary work within political theory deals with questions of historic injustice and of historic international injustice in particular. So uh, there is some such work, not a huge amount of it, more than there was, say, 10 or certainly 20 years ago. Um, but most of it, I think, is really concerned, I guess this isn't surprising, uh, with just the straightforward question of whether present-day states owe reparations to other states. Okay, so it's a question of do these duties exist, and if they do exist, what do they consist of? And that's what most of my work up to now has been about. So you try and make a bunch of arguments about how you can link the past to the present. But there is a, a further question, I think, that people haven't really thought about, and that's this one. So suppose we assume that contemporary states do possess such duties. What follows from the fact that such duties are generally unfulfilled? Okay, so the thought is that it's not good enough to imagine a world whereby people suddenly discover that they possess duties to others as a result of historic wrongdoing. Right? These duties haven't suddenly just appeared. We haven't just realized things about our past that we didn't know before that have been kept secret from us in most cases, although there is some of that. Um, rather, the story I want to tell is a story of ongoing, continuous wrongdoing that links past to present and in many ways implicates the present in particular wrongs of the past. And so I think that that's important for two reasons. So firstly, I think it makes a difference very crudely in terms of what our duties are. It makes a, a difference as to what we owe, right? So you owe something more if you fail to act upon duties than, if you, simply, than you do simply when you think about the original duties. So I'll say a little bit about that. But I want to think in particular about this, this other question. I want to think about the impact on other policy areas and to think about ways in which conceptualizing modern-day political communities as ongoing wrongdoers in relation to other states changes how we think about our states and changes what we owe to others in relation to fields which aren't often thought of in terms of reparative politics. Okay, so that's where we're going to end up.
But let me just start by giving you some context about uh, contemporary debates about reparations. So some of you may have seen this case. This came out, uh, the news of this just broke at the end of October, end of last month. Uh, and this is a second uh, proposed court case concerning the actions of uh, Britain, the British colonial government in Kenya in the 1950s. So uh, here's the detail of the report. More than 40,000 Kenyans are attempting to sue the British government for compensation in a second Mau Mau group action, alleging physical abuse or mistreatment during the insurgency against colonial rule in the 1950s. Now this comes uh, after an initial case, which was settled in 2013, uh, whereby the British government uh, agreed to pay £20 million to just over 5,000 Kenyans uh, who suffered direct torture at the hands, sexual abuse at the hands of the colonial administration during the 1950s. So there was a test case. The British government initially opposed the claims, as they always have done, of course, um, on two grounds. One was that uh, a familiar kind of statute of limitations argument that this had happened a long time in the past and that the case couldn't be treated in law anymore. The second was that... Um, responsibility for what happened in Kenya in the 1950s didn't actually belong with the current British government but belonged with the current Kenyan government because all responsibility for the British state had been passed on to the Kenyan government at the point of decolonisation. That's a remarkable claim. Um, it's true, of course, that Standardly, decolonization agreements contained these kind of clauses, right? So it's true that there were treaties that were signed which made it clear that there was no legal claim to be had against the colonial power. It's less clear how much moral force we might think such agreements might have. So the British government tried to get the case thrown out. That failed. And then, uh, in the face of some public, public opposition, I guess, uh, they settled. Uh, the claim was that uh, the claim on behalf of the British was that this would represent a, uh, a final and definitive uh, payment, and this would close down any future payments. Now, maybe the important point is this. Uh, this initial set of cases was to do specifically um, with the direct victims of the actions of the colonial government, so people who themselves suffered physical abuse of some kind. Okay? The more recent kind of case, and there's going to be a series of test cases, is broader. So unlike the first Mau Mau case, these new claims are not restricted to those who endured extreme physical violence. Claimants are seeking damages for a range of alleged offences, including false imprisonment, forced labour, and an interference with their right to education. So this, I think, potentially broadens the scope of claims that can be made and links it to a much wider kind of story you can tell about the way in which present-day advantages and disadvantages are linked to what happened during the colonial period. So if you go with this kind of logic, it doesn't seem as if it has to be the individuals who themselves were treated in ways that are obviously egregious in terms of, say, sexual, physical abuse. It opens a wider range of cases where claim might be made. And you get an even wider kind of set of cases, I think, if you look at this court case. So this, again, this is a, a, a mooted upcoming court case. Uh, news of this broke uh, earlier this year. So uh, a group, uh, I'll give you the details, um, a group of 14 Caribbean countries, CARICOM, uh, have announced plans to seek an apology and reparations from Britain, France, and the Netherlands in relation to the wrongs of the colonial period. 
a quotation here from Baldwin Spencer, our constant search and struggle for development and resources is linked directly to the historical inability of our nations to accumulate wealth from the efforts of our peoples during slavery and colonialism. So this isn't an argument that's based on the claims of the direct victims at the time, or at least not straightforwardly. The argument is one that people living in the present in these countries have been harmed in a certain sort of way by the lasting effects of colonialism and are therefore due some form of compensation. Okay. Um, now, if these arguments are going to work, I mean, so there's a question about whether these cases will work in law, whether they're going to be legally successful. Um, it might be thought that in some cases their the real purpose isn't so much to get a, uh, a legal victory as a, as a legal settlement. And so the aim might be to win over either British public opinion or French or Dutch public opinion or world public opinion uh, in such a way as to bring pressure on those countries to settle. And it's interesting if you look at, for example, the nature of the initial uh, material coming from CARICOM, they're trying clearly to say that there's something particular about Caribbean slavery and colonialism, which doesn't apply to other um, forms of colonialism in, in Asia, for example, uh, clearly trying to delineate a particular set of claims such that a settlement might be made without opening up the whole kind of words about historic colonialism. Now, again, whether that is defensible in moral terms is, I would suggest, an open question. But if the claim is that this is going to put pressure on British public opinion, there is, to put it mildly, a very long way to go. So here is some data. Um, this is uh, from an opinion poll from earlier this year, um, July this year, about contemporary British attitudes towards the British Empire. Okay, so let me show you three sets of figures. So first of all, there's a question about pride in the empire. Is the British Empire more something to be proud of or ashamed of? 59% of Britons, it's a cross sample, it's a big sample as well. 59% more something to be proud of, 19, only 19 say more something to be ashamed of, 23% don't know. And then a question, you know, and this is a different question, on the empire's legacy. Overall, do you think the countries that were colonized by Britain are better off or worse off for being colonized? 49% better off, 15% worse off, 36% don't know. Now this is kind of fascinating for lots of reasons. Let me just pull one thing out. This number is bigger than this number. So this means there's at least 10% of the British public who think that the empire is something to be proud of, even though they don't think that it made the country subject to it better off. That's very striking, but perhaps not quite as striking as this. A third of British people say they would like it if Britain still had an empire. <laughs> so if you add together the... the those who say yes and the don't knows. So, so under half say they would not like the empire to exist today. 20% don't know. Okay. So less than half the British public feel confident saying they wouldn't like the empire to exist today. What can we say about these figures? Oh, well, and, and by the way, just I mean you can't see this probably, but uh, this is the breakdown. I mean you might think, for example, that uh, there's a huge variation by age or something, uh, and there is some variation by age, but it's not massive. And so if you look, for example, at the 18 to 24 population, it's still the case you get 48 percent of 18 to 24 year olds saying the empire was more something to be proud of, uh, 40 percent saying uh, countries are better off, uh, 30 percent of 18 to 24 year olds. Uh, would like Britain to still have an empire. So this isn't some kind of generational thing that's going to go away in a few years. Uh, it's there across the spectrum. 
So what can we say about those figures? Well, uh, we can say these things, I think. Uh, that I don't take to be too controversial. These figures would have to change before pro-reparations pro arguments can have mass public appeal. And so actually, there is a sense in which that is the most important kind of finding, I think. And so if you're talking about reparations arguments, there is a case to be made that everything else I'm going to say after this is actually neither here nor there. But a great deal of philosophical debates about reparations just don't actually address the right point. The point is, the second point, these figures should be understood and have to be understood in the context of widespread ignorance about the nature of Britain's colonial past. And that's, you know, it's clear, I think, that that's the context with which we're operating. People simply don't know very much about the nature of the British Empire historically. You can look, for example, at the way that it's taught in British schools. Um, insofar as it features, which is not very much, it's almost only through an engagement with the slave trade. Uh, and that engagement comes you know, partly saying the slave trade was bad, but then it was abolished, which was good, and Britain was quite prominent in this, incidentally. It's not put in the context of the wider pattern of colonialisation within which it arose. And so, so if you're interested in arguing for reparations, it might be that the most important thing you can do is just try to run a public education argument and try to get uh, education about colonialism into school curriculums, uh, and try to spread understanding of what actually happened historically. Um, but if you want a normative claim, then here's a normative claim at the bottom. I think the nature of these numbers, and in particular the numbers relating to pride in the empire, and in relation to whether we think Britain should still have an empire, are actually prima facie evidence of ongoing injustice in relation to Britain's colonial past. I think, it's impossible. I think it's very hard, in good faith, to look at those numbers and see them as anything other than the result of a failure to teach adequately about Britain's empire, given the nature of our obligations that stem from past wrongdoing. Okay? So it might be that if you put up figures about um, the Tudors or about Norman Britain, you get high degrees of public ignorance as well. Um, but I think that there is a very particular argument why it's important that we teach about the empire and about colonialism that doesn't necessarily apply to those cases. And the fact that those figures exist, I think, shows is evidence of an ongoing failure. And it's that kind of ongoing failure that I guess I want to talk about today. And in particular, I think that what these figures show is there is basically a mistake, if you like, that's often made about the nature of many modern states, but particularly modern states of the former colonies, such as Britain, about the nature of their moral standing, if you like, within the world. I think that's true both at a public level, I also think that's true at a theoretical level. And so what I'm going to talk about now really relates to that theoretical level. So, um, let me just start by quickly uh, saying some things about what I take the, the case for reparations to be. Um, so this is, as it were, the, the starting point where the paper goes from, rather than trying to establish. Um, I realise that people might be interested in these arguments, and so, of course, we can take a talk about this kind of stuff in the Q&A in particular. So this is what I've spent most of my life working on academically up to this point, is trying to build arguments in favour of these claims. Okay, so, whether and to what extent any present-day persons or groups or rectificatory obligations to others as a result of historic injustice is obviously a much disputed question with plenty of argumentation on both sides. While some people put forward a range of different mechanisms, such as these, for linking present-day parties to past wrongdoing, others deny that the actions of previous generations 
can have implications for those who were not responsible for the commission of the acts in question. Okay? So that's a common theme in debates about this. If past generations weren't themselves responsible for the original acts of wrongdoing, how can present-day people have obligations in response to them? One prominent line of critique of pro-reparations arguments problematizes their backwards-looking focus, maintaining that justice is best served by a forward-looking focus, uh, which seeks to do the best it can to secure the rights and entitlements of persons in the future, rather than worrying about restoring some historic status quo ante, which may itself have been substantially unjust in a number of ways. So, in other work, I've argued that this kind of perspective, this kind of line that says, look, don't worry about the past, let's just do the best we can for the future, um, is only sustainable um, given uh, a certain kind of equally forward-looking perspective on questions of distributive justice, so questions of who should get what in the present day. Right. So if one advocates highly redistributive principles of distributive justice, whereby, for example, resources are reallocated afresh of each new generation, then it may be that the way in which historic actions affected past distributions is of relatively little importance in terms of who should have what, though there might still be a host of reasons in, in favour of forms of reparation which acknowledge and commemorate the past, and possibly an important place for present-day apologies in relation to past wrongdoing. Okay. So if you think that basically, say, you're an egalitarian and that we should redistribute all the resources in our community afresh each generation, then you might say commemoration is important and apology is important, but compensation doesn't matter very much because that's going to be taken care of by the background mechanisms that redistribute resources. Now, many political theorists do advocate principles of distributive justice which entail this kind of generational redistribution when thinking about relations within political communities, whether they be conceived of as nations or states or peoples or whatever. But this picture often changes when they think about international justice specifically, so what peoples in one country owe to another. So while some egalitarian cosmopolitans continue to endorse some kind of ongoing redistribution, in the name, for example, of a principle such as global equality of opportunity, others advocate much more limited principles of distributive justice than those which they endorse in relation to the domestic sphere. So they talk about national self-determination, they talk about holding peoples responsible for their actions. Many people don't advocate the same kind of redistribution, arguing in favour of the same kind of social mobility internationally as they do domestically. So here's the claim I've made previously. Insofar as principles of international distributive justice don't require periodic redistribution between communities, other than at most to bring non-nationals up to some minimal level of well-being, they're backward-looking. So what happened in the past makes a difference. Insofar as they are backward-looking, they need at least to think about the lasting effects of historic injustice. In such a context, one can't assume that forward-looking redistribution will mean that past wrongdoing doesn't matter. Okay? So, to give you an example, if you were to look at a domestic society, uh, you might say, well, whether we need to pay compensation for historic wrongdoing depends upon the extent to which the effects of this wrongdoing can still be seen in the present day. If, for example, you have a very ethnically mixed society whereby people, you can't say that a particular group has done well or done badly, that might be a good case for saying that, you know, patterns of social mobility mean that effectively the effects of historic injustice have washed out. 
If particular communities, however, still seem to be advantaged and others disadvantaged, that looks to be a good reason to say we need to pay attention to how present-day advantages came, came about. If that's true domestically, it's also true internationally, and normally international redistribution, if even existing, is much, much more limited. So previously I've argued for these three different ways in which present-day parties can be said to have uh, obligations as a result of historic injustice. And there is you know, a weighty literature on all three of these. So first of all, questions of benefit. When present-day parties are advantaged and others are disadvantaged by the automatic effects of historic injustice. So you see that argument in relation to colonialism all the time. A claim that says that per particular communities or countries are better off as a result of colonization because perhaps it fueled the Industrial Revolution, something like that. Others have been harmed by, for example, the way in which Western powers divided up Africa into different states artificially by the historic wrongs perpetrated on their peoples. And that something about lasting benefit and lasting harm gives rise to obligations in the present. Now, it's going to be a, a complicated argument and a controversial argument. It's going to have to engage in counterfactual reasoning in some way. Um, there's going to be, have to be scrutiny of the historical record. But that's one argument. The second argument is based on entitlement. This is a more simple argument. Uh, it's to do with property. So the basic idea is that historic injustice may have involved the misappropriation of property. Uh, one set of people taking things away that belong to other peoples and retaining it. And so the claim might be that people in the present, the heirs of the original victims, have inherited rights to these entitlements and they should be returned to them. So you can see that most clearly if you think about, for example, cultural property, artworks, statues, that kind of thing. But maybe it can be expanded. Maybe you can think about natural resources. Maybe you can think about wages that should have been paid to persons involved in involuntary labor. Maybe you can even think about compensation payments that should have been paid to people who are the direct victims of injustice. And there might be thoughts about territory as well. Now, both of those models kind of rest upon, don't have to make any kind of claim about ongoing injustice. Okay? So it's possible to think of your present-day community as a pretty great place, and then just reflect upon the fact that actually, maybe we've benefited from uh, dubious historical actions by other people who weren't us. Or maybe we have in our possession some things that actually belong to others. And then you can have a story about whether you, as moral agents, should give up these benefits or give these items of property back. The third case is a little different. This thinks about situations where present-day parties are members of historically continuous communities which bear ongoing responsibility for failing to fulfill rectificatory duties to others. Okay? And so this is an argument that basically says that actually, when you think about international justice, um, things are slightly different than they are perhaps in the domestic case. Um, it's common to think of uh, generations succeeding one another. So you think that people who existed historically had very little in common with people who live in the present day. One generation replaces another. And so how can we hold ourselves responsible for the actions of our forebears? That, so the thought goes, would be like visiting the sins uh, of the father upon the children. But of course, it's not the case that political communities have this kind of shape. Instead, they slowly evolve with time. People are born into them and people are die, and they shift slowly their membership across time. Now, if you think of that idea, and if you accept the claim that a failure to rectify injustice itself, in a sense, constitutes an act of injustice, right? 
If I have a duty to you, which I don't fulfill, that's a wrong. If I don't fulfill it tomorrow, that's another wrong. And the day after and the day after, you can have a story about ongoing wrongdoing. And so you can argue, and it needs more argumentation, of course, but you can argue that insofar as you have historical political communities that have acted wrongly in the past and haven't put that right, what you have there is a story of ongoing malfeasance, okay? of a failure to act in the way that they should have done, which, as it were, drags in later generations. So on that account, thinking of the, the past as, as it were, a different country is deeply misleading. In fact, you're a member of a collectivity uh, which has particular sorts of links to the past, a collectivity which has ongoing responsibilities which haven't been fulfilled. So, suppose we accept all of that, or at least suppose we even accept some of that. Suppose we think that one of those three gives us good reasons to think that there are existing obligations of reparation that emerge from historic colonialism which aren't being fulfilled. What then? Okay. Um, accepting the existence of any kind of present-day obligation means accepting the claim that modern-day states are guilty of wrongdoing insofar as they could fulfill their obligations but fail to do so. Obligations of rectificatory justice, so that stem from wrongdoing, are determinate in a way which obligations of distributive justice often are not. They're owed by one agent or set of agents to another. To fail to comply with an obligation of justice of this sort is just to act unjustly. If I owe you a duty of compensation, it's like owing you a debt. And if I fail to fulfil it, I wrong you. The apparent tautology of this statement, I think, masks the truth about those who are responsible for ongoing injustice. Insofar as they fail to act to fulfil their duties, their wrongdoing gets cumulatively worse. This isn't how this is normally portrayed, right? I mean, it's common in the literature to think about wrongdoing in the past as something that just gets less bad over time. As you move further away from it, responsibility lessens, and it goes into the rearview mirror. But there is at least a sense, I think, in which that isn't true. There's the original wrongdoing and then a failure to put it right. And there's a sense in which that just makes things worse. So this is, you know, as phrased, that's just straightforward. It's true. It's a fact of the matter. A failure to act is a further act of wrongdoing, which is separate from and further to the previous wrongdoing. It's added, as it were, to the moral account. Now, this is the case, and I think this is what confuses people, even if two further circumstances obtain. So it may, although it need not, be the case that the effects of wrongdoing, or at least of the initial wrongdoing, lessen as time progresses, in the sense that subsequent failures of the duty to comply with obligations has a diminishingly harmful effect on victims. It also may, though need not be the case, that subsequent failures to comply with obligations may, if considered individually, be less serious from a moral point of view than the earlier breaches. Failing to fulfil a rectificatory obligation is not a one-off action, but an ongoing process. Each day that the obligation isn't fulfilled is a day when something that should have been done is not done. So an acceptance, I think, of the existence of present-day rectificatory obligations typically commits one to a particular view of the modern-day states which possess the obligations in question as repeat offenders. Wrongdoers whose unjust actions stretch back in time Typically, they're not necessarily to the commission of the original act of injustice itself. In some cases, the story told will be a relatively uncomplicated one of continuous malfeasance, which originates in historic wrongdoing, which straightforwardly was not rectified at the time. 
So if we look, for example, at history during and since the colonial period, the story which the defender of present-day reparative obligations tells is one of sustained and repeated wrongdoing, whereby multiple grave wrongs were perpetrated, often over prolonged periods of time, and no subsequent attempt to apologise or to compensate the victim was made. Consider, for example, Britain's initial involvement in the slave trade, which came to a formal end not with the payment of compensation to those enslaved and their families and communities, but to the slave owners who lost out financially as a result of the emancipation of their property. Consider, as I've mentioned already, the British experience of decolonization, whereby independence for territories such as Kenya was only granted on the condition of agreement that liability for the wrongs of the colonial period were the responsibility of the new successor governments rather than the British state. Consider the post-independence relationship of Haiti and France. Haiti, of course, the site of the first sort of successful uh, slave revolt against colonialism whereby Haiti was compelled to pay crippling levels of compensation to France between 1825 and 1947 to compensate France for its losses following Haiti's successful slave revolt. The list goes on and on. The Haiti case, if you don't know about it, is even worse than that sounds. The only way that Haiti could pay compensation was to borrow money from French banks at sort of crippling rates of interest. So the debt just got crazily and crazily bigger. Okay. Now... This all might sound obvious, but I don't think it is obvious. And I don't think it's been picked up in most writing on historic injustice. So the point that failing to fulfill a duty of injustice is itself unjust has been acknowledged to some extent. In particular, it's been employed as a device to link different generations together so that past wrongdoing can be characterised not as a one-off event, but as an ongoing wrong which can potentially affect generations who weren't born at the point of the original wrongdoing. So philosophers worry about, at this point, something called the non-identity problem, which some of you may have come across. The non-identity problem is concerned with the fact that historic actions made a difference to who exists in the present. Um, if these historic actions hadn't taken place, quite different people would have been conceived and born, both in terms of the, the colonising powers and the colonies themselves. And so different people would exist. And so for some people, this is very problematic because how can you say that you've been harmed by these historic events if you would never have existed but for the events in question? So people have invoked this argument about the failure to rectify as a way of trying to get around that. So they say, well, imagine the compensation should have been paid historically but wasn't, and that therefore um, the children of the original victims grew up in straitened conditions with fewer resources than they would have had. The argument then says, well, there's going to be some harm to them as a result. So there might be some compensation due, not because of what happened directly to their parents, but because of the subsequent failure to pay the compensation. But normally that argument is limited and again thinks that this drifts away with time. So the argument says, well, of course, if the compensation had been paid, you don't know what the parent would have done with it. And the more the time passes after the non-failure of compensation, the less you can be sure the children or subsequent generations have been harmed. Okay, so in other work, I've talked about that argument. And I think that just gets things wrong. I think that sees the failure to compensate as a one-off action. And that understates the agency of countries who aren't paying compensation in this case. Right? In fact, if they're failing to compensate in a continuous way, you can say that each and every point in the life of the child is an act of injustice that wrongs them, and you can think about compensation in that way. 
Now, I can talk more about that kind of argument in questions that people want, but suffice to say, if you have that kind of argument about ongoing failure to pay compensation, then it starts to look, at the very least, like a debt which can't go down over time. Okay? Maybe interest gets attached to it. Maybe it grows in various ways when people suffer harms because they don't have the resources in question. If you think about cases where the people who weren't compensated uh, suffered great wrongs because of their poverty, it starts to look like a particularly kind of morally horrendous sort of wrong that might in itself have very great compensatory duties. Um, modeling all of that is complicated. But just suffice it to say this. There are some ways of making that argument um, that result in a situation where what is actually owed as a result of historic wrongdoing is monumental, is gigantic, is possibly much greater than what would be owed, even if one were to argue for an egalitarian cosmopolitan distribution of resources. There's a, I mean, this is kind of cheating, but there was a, there was a court case at some point in, I think, the, the 20s or the 30s in the US, um, whereby there was a, a, a white man who looked black, a dark-colored skin, and was forced, wrongly, uh, to ride in the colored carriage of a rail car. And he was in there for 90 minutes. And upon leaving, uh, he sued the railroad company for the trauma he experienced by having to be in the colored carriage for 90 minutes. And he won a quite significant amount of money. And so there is an argument, of course, that you can use that to calculate how much compensation is during the present day. All you have to say is, right, well, clearly being black at that point for 90 minutes is, makes you that much money worse off than someone who was white at that time. So all you have to do is multiply that amount by the lifespan of uh, a single black person, then multiply that by the total number of African Americans in the United States, and pretty quickly you reach a sum which uh, is a multiple of world historic GDP by quite a large fraction. Um, now, that's, that's kind of joking, but it's kind of not joking. What, I think you can get a point quite quickly with this that basically says that trying to unpick this is sort of meaningless. Um, not because it was all so long ago and doesn't matter, but because actually the sums are so massive, right? If you were to try to do compensation along the lines of how we often think compensation should work, it would be so hugely demanding that, again, it might be more demanding than having a one-off egalitarian uh, redistribution. Um, what we should do about that is an interesting question. I would suggest what we shouldn't do is say, well, therefore, let's not do anything. Uh, because it's indeterminate, there can be no way of owing what's owed, therefore let's just move on, right? That kind of move would only be in any way justifiable if it was accompanied by some kind of really serious redistribution. In the absence of that, I don't think what modern day states can do is point to their current holdings and make any kind of claims about how those holdings are justified by their history other than by the weakest kind of argument that says that we currently have them and we're used to having them and maybe there would be harm experienced by us if we had to give them up, right? It looks as if that's the strongest kind of claim that can be made to title rather than any sort of argument about desert or ownership or anything like that. Okay, that's the first sort of substantive claim I want to make. Let me skip forward a little bit. Um, okay. Because um, I want to say in the second part of this, uh, something about a different sort of argument. Okay, so one set of claims uh, 
that come out of this relate to what is owed as a matter of compensation. Okay, so the claim is that the failure to fulfill duties means you basically owe more. Okay, you can't assume it gets less over time, it might be getting more over time. Um, but this isn't the sole effect, I want to say, of the failure to fulfill rectificatory obligations. So I also want to say that the failure to rectify poses a particular threat to what we might term the moral integrity of present-day states. Characterizing the state as an ongoing wrongdoer makes a difference to how we assess the justifiability and legitimacy of its actions in a range of policy areas where it affects the well-being of non-citizens. And this is the bit where I'm going to get into the political theory methodology a little bit, and I ask for your patience. So one thought here is that the dominant focus on questions of distributive justice in much political theory of recent years has led us to underplay the significance of failing to act in accordance with duties of justice. So suppose that we believe that the distribution of benefits and burdens which obtain within a given community is unjust. Suppose we also believe that this need not be the case, that it would be possible to realise a just distribution uh, or to bring about a distribution which, if not perfectly just, um, would at least be less unjust than the current status quo. Given that it would be possible, and one might add feasible and not overly demanding, to bring about such distribution, it seems to follow that those who suffer as a result of this not being realised are treated in a way they should not be. They have entitlements of justice which are not being fulfilled. We might even say rights to property which are not being respected, but which could be if others were to act differently. So the context in which we live is one of background injustice. That's the basic point. So you can think that we live in a world where people don't have what they should have and therefore it's an unjust world. This doesn't only mean that things should be otherwise, um, it means that there are people who are choosing to act in a way which predictably has the effect of furthering injustice even if that isn't their direct intention. So a failure to fulfil a requirement of justice is unjust whether the domain is that of distributive or of corrective or rectificatory justice, so the stuff I talk about. Um, the two contexts, however, are not quite the same. To fail to fulfil a demand of rectificatory justice is to err in a different way than is implicated in a failure to realise or pursue a demand of distributive justice. Now, explaining what I mean by that isn't straightforward. A strong way to put the point would be to maintain that there is at least a sense in which, in all things being equal, it's worse to fulfil a demand of duty, sorry, it's worse to fail to fulfill, sorry, it's worse to fail to fulfill a duty of corrective justice than one of distributive justice. So the theorist Robert Goodin says, rectifying wrongs is a matter of corrective justice. That is significantly different from and typically takes precedence over distributive justice. When a car has been stolen by someone, from someone who is undeservedly rich, we think the police should nonetheless return the car to its rightful owner rather than giving it to someone else who needs it more. Whatever deep relation there may be at the foundational level between corrective and distributive justice, they clearly operate independently of one another on their surface. So, and this, this also fits in with writers such as Thomas Poggy who have argued that there is sort of an ordering to our moral demands and that some are basically more important than others. So, for example, he thinks that violating negative duties, harming others, is worse than failing to fulfil positive duties. So there is, on my account, a sense in which an agent is wronged when she doesn't receive what's due to her as a function of corrective justice, which doesn't hold in the same way when we're thinking about the non-receipt of distributive justice-based entitlement. 
Um, so consider the international context specifically, where we're considering the duties that a given political community has to members of other communities. My claim is that a failure to fulfill an obligation there threatens the moral integrity of such a community in a way that doesn't follow straightforwardly in the case of a failure to pursue the cause of international distributive justice. I think there's three reasons for that, three characteristics which corrective justice have, sorry, which distributive justice has. Duties of distributive justice are imperfect, they're non-determinate, and they're deeply controversial. Okay, I'm going to kind of skip over this quickly, but hopefully that's fairly clear. So when I say that they're, uh, when I say that they're imperfect, the idea is that the question of who these duties are owed to can't be specified in terms of particular individuals. So if I'm an egalitarian, then uh, the claim is that there should be a global distribution of resources what, in, in accordance with equality. What I should do about that is a bit of an open question. Who should I give it to? What should I do in a context of non-compliance? Right? Um, should I reduce my level of holdings to sort of the average level that everyone would have? Who should I give the others to? Am I bound to do that in the absence of other people acting in that way? So they're indeterminate, they're imperfect. It might be really unclear what the answer is to those questions. And so I think that people can sort of look at an, un at an unjust society. They can live within that society with a higher than level average of resources, but not think that they're necessarily doing themselves something terribly wrong. Okay? I think this is quite separate when we come to think about rectificatory justice. Um, Claims relating to the non-compliance of others don't have the same force in relation to rectificatory justice. There is a perpetrator with a perfect obligation to a specific set, to a particular victim or victims, and this obligation should be fulfilled according to the normal way we think about this, regardless of whether other perpetrators are fulfilling their obligations to their victims. Okay. And I, I, I still have a thought, and this is maybe more controversial, that it's also the case that uh, the deep disagreement which we find in relation to questions of distributive justice is different in character to that obtains in relation to rectificatory justice. The latter, at least, which I talk about, stem from actions which we can straightforwardly condemn as morally wrong. Even apologists for the colonial actions of Western powers are typically ready to admit that the colonial period involved many instances of egregious wrongdoing even if they dispute the extent to which actions of colonial powers have had net negative impacts in the present day. We needn't press the point that genocide, slavery, rape and sexual enslavement, territorial invasion and military occupation were all instances of terrible and deeply wrongful injustice, nor that such actions were often justified by reference to racist ideologies which we now find morally abhorrent. The respectable modern-day opponent of reparations shouldn't dispute any of this. Instead, her claim is that these historic actions, though manifestly unjust, don't give rise to contemporary obligations on the part of present-day parties. Now, of course, it has to be accepted that the theoretical linkage between past and present is philosophically and politically controversial. The, the literature on historic injustice is testament to that. But I would suggest that debates over rectificatory justice typically don't go as deep, that at least some of what appears at present to be fundamental disagreement is resolvable, and there's more prospect for some kind of consensus. Our disagreements about distributive justice are entrenched and well rehearsed, 
and in, and in many cases speak to not only disputed empirical questions, but to profound disagreements about morality and the ends of life. By contrast, questions relating to rectificatory justice are relatively under-theorized. Part of the typical claim, this relates to what I said at the start about education, of the advocate of reparations is that questions relating to historic injustice um, have not been aired to nearly the same extent as those of distributive justice more generally, certainly in countries such as the UK. One might contrast this approach to the limited but nonetheless significant moves which have been made to apologise and compensate for some domestic injustices, such as the 2008 apology by the Australian Prime Minister to Australia's Indigenous peoples, and indeed the British government's 2010 acceptance of the report of the Savile Inquiry into the events of Bloody Sunday. Comparing that process to the experience of British colonialism elsewhere in the world is, I would suggest, very instructive. It's hard to conclude that the lack of movement on international reparations has truly arisen as a result of philosophical disagreement as to the moral relation between past and present in the absence of popular knowledge and understanding of the nature of the West's colonial past. Okay, I'm going to skip a bit and basically get to the end. Um, okay, well, I guess there's a bit I'm going to skip about... Um, no, okay, I'll do this and this will enable us to finish. So, um, so there's a perspective, I guess, which I want to oppose, which I think you find predominantly in contemporary political theory, uh, even political theory which is very critical of existing international relations, okay? So there's a perspective there that holds the global, on, on global justice, that accepts that we live in an unjust world and that there's more, and for some much more, that we should do in order to bring about global distributive justice. This can be combined with criticism of our role in the global economic order, of various foreign policy enterprises, such as interventions in the affairs of other political communities, of our immigration record, of our record on overseas aid, and so forth. It can also accept and involve an acceptance of the unjust character of our community's past actions, and genuine regret and even shame at the way in which our forebears treated others. But something crucial is missing from this picture. If, the view of the if this view of the community doesn't include an acknowledgement of ongoing malfeasance, not as a relatively recent phenomenon, which arises in a context of deep theoretical disagreement as to the correct principles of global distributive justice and the proper conduct of foreign policy, but as an ongoing and continuous process of the willful mistreatment of others, which has typically been racist in character. There's something, therefore, inherently problematic, I think, and you see a lot of this, about an approach to global justice questions which starts from the perspective of ideal theory. Imagining a world of just states operating in a mutually beneficial, non-exploitative context, developing principles of just interaction which would apply in such a world, and then seeking to apply these principles to real-world contexts, taking at this point injustice and non-compliance into account. Right? So the thinking that, in fact, history hasn't been like that only comes in right at the end as a corrective. I think that's very problematic. The point isn't simply that ideal theory is unrealistic, and doesn't take account of the inevitability of non-compliance. This is accepted and understood by ideal theorists. The problem is that global justice is necessarily the domain of the non-ideal. Um, there's nothing natural or fundamental about the states who make up contemporary international society. They are the contingent product of their shared history, and in many cases were shaped or deliberately formed by acts of subjugation and oppression. Charles Mills makes this point in his recent paper, Decolonizing Western Political Philosophy. He says, 
It's not many the case that ideal writers such as John Rawls um, don't talk about colonialism, but that his foundational assumptions rule out such a world. How could a model world of largely monadic societies conceived of as cooperative ventures for mutual advantage possibly serve to map an actual world consisting of Western powers transoceanically establishing and dominating exploited colonial territories? These are different realities, different worlds. To assume that a slave society or European colonial outpost or a white settler state is a cooperative venture for mutual advantage is not to make a simplifying assumption for theoretic purposes, but to repudiate theorizing them altogether since you've assumed away the most fundamental and glaring fact about such societies, that they are systems of oppression. You cannot, by a series of minor adjustments, then get closer to social reality afterwards. Rather, you've given up on mapping the actual social reality at all. Okay. Um, he had a... Oh, I'll skip that. Okay, so, this is where this is going. This kind of approach, which models contemporary states as either fully just, or as sufficiently just to be legitimate, and then seeks to determine what rights and duties such states possess in a real-world context, is deeply problematic in a world where the moral integrity of states is, in fact, called into question. Deriving principles of just interaction and adjusting them fails to take account of the morally problematic nature of the structure of international society within which contemporary IR takes place. And I think this affects our theorizing, taking this nature, this idea that modern day states are ongoing wrongdoers, whose moral standing is called into question. You can see this affecting a wide range of policy areas. And so here are some examples. In each case, I want to say, the way in which we view the state in question affects the nature of the subsequent normative analysis. For example, the claim that a given state is guilty of an ongoing refusal to fulfill its rectificatory obligations can seriously undermine its claim to the moral high ground when it seeks to justify military action in the name of the pursuit of justice or to invoke the value of its right to self-determination in making choices as to who to allow to pass through its borders or to promote a liberal nationalist ethos amongst its citizenry. In some cases, the existence of unfulfilled rectificatory obligations serves both to solve the problem of the indeterminacy of general distributive duties to others by specifying a particular set of problems who have a right to receive assistance and to further problematize the moral wrong of failing to comply. So consider the claim that advantaged states have duties of assistance, number two here, uh, to help those in dire need. Without exception, the poorest countries of the world were victims of serious moral wrongdoing during the colonial period. The wrong of failing to fulfil obligations to such individuals is particularly grievous, I made this point earlier, given their urgent need for resources. Now, I've argued elsewhere that the injustice prevalent in the shared history between more and less advantaged states is of key significance when we come to consider the fairness of international trade regimes, of loan agreements, of microfinance initiatives, and other forms of exchange which seemingly rest upon voluntary agreement, but which take place against the backdrop of distributive and political inequality. Historical injustice means that agreements which would otherwise be justifiable contravene a moral prohibition against taking advantage of the victims of injustice. The wrong involved in this form of exploitation is particularly egregious when the inequality between the two parties arises not from the general background conditions of distributive injustice, so just a fact of inequality, but at least in part from a failure on the part of one party to fulfil its rectificatory obligations directly to, the, to another. 
Finally, consider the debate over the fair allocation of the costs of mitigation, adaptation and compensation associated with the present and future impact of anthropogenic climate change. One much contested issue here concerns the extent to which it's justifiable to hold present-day generations liable for the costs of the industrial emissions of their ancestors, particularly those which it might be claimed were produced prior to the point at which it was reasonable to, con to conclude that CO2 emissions were likely to have a harmful environmental impact. Now, if we portray the members of modern-day states as innocent third parties in relation to these emissions, it's easy to see how one can construct an argument which holds it to be unreasonable to levy these costs upon them, as opposed to charging them to the account of those with the greatest capacity to pay or even leaving them to lie where they fall. The picture is rather different, however, if we conceive of the political communities in question as recurrent malfeasors who have consistently acted in violation of or, and with little or no regard for their obligations to others. From such a perspective, we may even conclude that ignorance of the effects of industrial emissions is no defence. The consistent pattern of disregard for the well-being of non-nationals, which such communities have demonstrated, may support the claim that they would not have acted any differently, even if they had fully been aware of the likely effects of their actions, and that therefore they should be made to pay. Okay, so just to finish, it's a little bit of old-style political theory. In his second treatise on civil government, John Locke writes of a consensual process which leads man to enter the social contract and establish the state in order to avoid what he calls the inconveniences of the state of nature and better further his duty of self-preservation. Positive law, state authority, property and currency all emerge as the consequence of voluntary and mutually beneficial agreements between individuals. So it's a positive story about how we got to the present from the past. In his Discourse on the Origin of Inequality, Jean-Jacques Rousseau comprehensively rejects this account. For Rousseau, in practice, the state is formed to convert might into right and to cast a veneer of respectable entitlement over property holdings obtained by force, an account of the origins of property which both Adam Smith and Karl Marx would later largely accept. The moral character of the two forms of civil society which emerge are very different. So my claim in this paper is that we should see the contemporary international realm encompassing the existing state system, current territorial and resource entitlements, the character of international law, including significantly its lack of retrospective effect, the regimes of international institutions such as the IMF and World Bank and global governance institutions such as the components of the UN in Rousseauian rather than Lockean terms. From this perspective, the wrongs of the past are not a temporally remote phenomenon which have nothing to do with present-day persons who are not morally responsible for their commission. So I've instead argued that their ongoing non-rectification challenges the right of modern-day persons to see themselves as innocent third parties in relation to historic injustice. Past wrongdoing does potentially give rise to compensatory obligations insofar as it causes lasting harms, but in many cases, it's also initiated an ongoing pattern of obfuscation, denial and injustice, which poses a significant challenge to the moral integrity of modern-day states. As Ta-Nehisi Coates has recently argued in relation to the debate over reparations for African Americans in the US, he writes, reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he's not living a drunken lie. 
The fact that historic wrongdoing should have been addressed a long time ago doesn't lessen the need to confront the demons in our past. Failing to do so furthers and continues our community's ongoing malfeasance.